0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, we're going to look at this week's news about uh, gravitational waves, exciting stuff, and colliding neutron stars that cause these. But first, as more and more states legalize marijuana consumption, whether for recreational purposes or medicinal use, law enforcement has a question. How do you test drivers. How, how do we test drivers for pot-caused impairment? Can we make a breathalyzer for weed? Here with some solutions, plus other short subjects in science, is Lauren Silverman, health science and technology reporter at KERA News in Dallas, Texas. Welcome back, Lauren. Hey, good to be here. So, so why is it so hard to figure out if someone's driving high? Like, you know, simple breathalyzer test.
1: Well, yeah, it's actually a pretty big challenge. Standard breathalyzers don't detect marijuana. And what dra- what officers typically do is run blood and urine tests. The problem with doing blood and urine tests is that those tests are not sensitive enough to show whether someone just smoked marijuana right before they got in the car or whether they did uh, they smoked marijuana or ate a cookie or whatever mm-hmm. it might be a week or even two weeks ago. So there's this race to get an accurate and a fast testing device to the market. Uh, Hence, everyone trying to come up with these marijuana breathalyzers. And I visited one company in Oakland, California, that is creating a, a marijuana breathalyzer. It's called Hound. And the device is small and black, and it has a little tube sticking out of it. And you just blow through that tube a few times. And the CEO, Mike Lynn, says that in a few minutes, it's able to analyze and detect tiny amounts of THC, which is the active ingredient in cannabis, um, in someone's breath.
0: Hmm. And and you 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 want to know that if is is this something that they just took or as you say not uh, taking a month ago because it stays in your blood and here's a. Here's a a Texas law enforcement official expressing that view.
2: I don't
3: want to know that there's just something present. Just because there's alcohol in somebody's breath or just because there's marijuana shown, I need to be able to show, prove that there's impairment, that they can't safely operate a vehicle.
1: Yeah, so that's um, Sergeant Mark Vinson, and he's a drug recognition expert. When I talked with him, he said it would be a game changer to have a device that could very quickly detect whether someone had just smoked or not. But the larger issue is okay, if they just smoked, what does that really mean about whether they're high? Mm. And there's no nationally agreed-upon standard. It's not like, oh, the .08 blood alcohol level where people agree, okay, that means you're impaired. There isn't that number for Mm. marijuana.
0: Yeah, it looks like they're going to have to come up with something as all this expands through the states. Let's move on to, uh, but stay in the realm of criminal science because there's some new findings about what happens if you're on trial and have a mental disorder of some kind. What's going on here?
1: Yeah, I thought this was fascinating. So c- criminal offenders who have a mental disorder, it turns out, are going to be judged more harshly if that disorder is genetic rather than environmental. And what that means, the researchers who who uncovered this are from the University of Missouri. They wanted to see whether it mattered if a criminal was born with a mental disorder or um, had some environmental factor that caused it, like childhood trauma. And they tested their hypothesis on two surveys with about 600 participants. They had the participants read one of two vignettes about an armed robbery. Basically, a 22-year-old guy goes into a bank and he's either arrested for robbing a bank or for robbing a bank and killing the clerk. And then the subjects are randomly assigned one of three follow-ups, which describe this young man as having a brain disorder. And that brain disorder could either be genetic, environmental, or accidental. And what they found was that the offenders who developed mental disorders as a result of abuse or some sort of accident were seen much more favorably than those who had genetic disorders. In other, in other words, I mean, if you're born with a mental disorder, you're hmm. seen as deserving more blame and punishment well, than that, people who had accidental.
0: Wow. You know, that hardly, hardly seems fair. Can the court system work around this bias somehow?
1: Um, that, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, it seems like at this point, the research is just gives some clues for public defenders about how they might want to craft hmm. their their case when they're talking yeah. about what their client did. And they might want to emphasize childhood abuse m- and not genetic differences.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, our next story takes us to the problem of gassy cows, <laughs> flatulent <laughs> yes, cows, I'm... burping cows. Is there, some, is there anything we can try to get a lid on all that methane they admit?
1: It's yeah, this has been an ongoing problem. The second largest source of methane emission in the U.S. is cow farts and belches. Belches are actually even worse than the farts. Um, Unfortunately, you know, cows are not great for the planet, but we still like to eat them a lot of people. Um, And traditionally, this the idea of getting them to emit less methane, people have focused on how can we change the diets of the cows to to maybe, uh, you know, lower that amount. Because the cows churn out so much methane um, because in their digestive systems, the, the largest part of their stomach, the rumen, is filled with these microorganisms. Um, bacteria, and more importantly for this topic, the archaea. And the archaea help break down and digest the plant cells that they're eating. But in the process, they produce all this methane. So it turns out what they eat actually matters less than what microbes are in their stomach, and what microbes are in their stomach has to do with their genetics. So the breed of cow actually matters more in terms of how much methane is coming out than whether huh. they eat grass or corn.
0: Could we do a microbiome transplant somehow? You know,
1: <laughs> you want to volunteer? <laughs> no,
0: but well, we've heard about this in people, you know, trying to change their microbiomes.
1: Yeah, I don't think the cow would enjoy that very much, but I, I think. It would be even smarter, perhaps, if, you know, people say, if we could alter some genetics or or choose a breed that has the lowest emissions.
0: And one last quick thing, some insight into all those glowing stories about the health benefits of chocolate. What have we learned about that?
1: Well, of course, Halloween is coming up, and it's the season of candy everywhere. So Vox decided to look at 100 studies that had been funded by the candy maker Mars and found that, get this... Of those studies, they overwhelmingly drew glowing conclusions about cocoa and chocolate.
0: I'm shocked, um, shocked.
1: You've heard, yeah, right? It's good for your heart. It boosts memories. It Memory, it b- fights cancer. It brings peace to earth. Okay, maybe not the last one, but um, <laughs> those are the types of claims we hear. And, you know, it turns out a lot of these studies are funded by the companies that make the products, uh-huh. like Snickers and Three Musketeers and all of that. And that's not unusual, but it is concerning. And- um, the media coverage of chocolate, you know, mania doesn't help. We're responsible, too. Yeah. Um, it seems to have influenced people's buying habits But and there, people but, are seeking out this dark chocolate. There
0: are some studies that say that one, you know, one ounce of dark chocolate a day could help you a little bit. But you're talking about going overboard here.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's just that those studies um, are observational. So there needs to be a little bit more research still of, of the health claims about mm. chocolate. There is some evidence that it can help um, with blood pressure, but it isn't really conclusive in terms mm. of the risk of heart attack and so on. Just
0: in time for Halloween. Thank you, Lauren.
1: <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> it's quite all right.
0: Keep, it, it's good for me. Lauren Silverman, health science and technology reporter at uh, KERA News in Dallas, Texas. And now it's time to play Good Thing, Bad Thing. Because every story has a flip side. A new security breach seems to happen every week, right? Another day, another patch, one of the costs of living a digital life. Well, this week, researchers revealed a vulnerability in the protocol that protects your Wi-Fi connection. They exposed a bug in the WPA2 protocol, if you want to get technical. It's not a device or a program, but the underlying security that is built into all modern wireless networks. Before you panic, all hope is not lost. Dan Gooden is here to break down this latest security issue. Dan is the security editor at Ars Technica based out of San Francisco. Welcome to Science Friday.
4: It's great to be here, Ira.
0: So that WPA2 protocol, isn't that the place where I enter my secret code to my router that you need to enter if you want to use it, you know?
4: That's right. That's right. That's the Wi-Fi password that you need to right. get from, you know, the the few handful of uh you know, Wi-Fi cafes that actually use a uh, password to protect their their Wi-Fi network.
0: So, what went wrong here?
4: Well, it it turns out that there has been lurking in this protocol uh, the ability for an attacker to um, cause uh, the Wi-Fi router um, to reissue a key over and over again. And when this key gets issued a second or third time, it reuses what's uh, known as a cryptographic nonce. A cryptographic nonce is the, is the device that adds some randomness to things. And so it's never, ever, ever supposed to be used more than once. And if you can get um, somebody to, to reissue this key and, and use it a second or third time, the key no longer is secret. And this allows an attacker to, um, in theory, in, in a, on certain platforms at least, completely bypass the, the uh, very, very otherwise strong encryption that WPA2 uh, provides
0: uh, is there any is there any WPA2 protocol type that's more vulnerable than the other?
4: Um, well, there are certain operating systems where yeah. um, the vulnerability is particularly bad. So um, you know, a lot of people have Android phones, and it turns out that um, you know because of the, the specific way that WPA2 is implemented, not only in in uh, Android but also in Linux, from which Android is derived. It's particularly bad there. Mm. Um, they, can, they can actually cause you to wow. uh, install a key of, your, of the attacker's choice and just completely bypass everything, inject uh, malware into, like, a website that somebody's visiting. Um, it's not quite as bad on some of the other platforms, yeah. you know, Windows. Damn, and, there's got to
0: be some good news here. Can we patch it? Can we take care of it?
4: Yeah, there is, there's definitely some good news. Um, first of all, yes, it can be patched. Uh, Windows actually patched it last week. You know, Microsoft, so anyone who is updated on all of their Windows patches is already, um, th- that particular machine is not vulnerable to it. Their, their Wi-Fi network may still be. Um, we're expecting um, Apple to patch uh, iOS and Mac OS uh, very, very soon. Um, and you know, other um, uh, routers and OS's should be patched pretty soon. Um, the other reason that we shouldn't despair too much is that, um, you know, most apps that people's uh, smartphones are using, uh, as well as many, many uh, websites that uh, people are, are visiting, um, you know, regularly, um, you know, ScienceFriday.com included, already use uh, encryption. Um, they use something called, you know, HTTPS or TLS right, encryption. Right. And that means that if as long as those sites are are doing the encryption correctly, um, they're not going to, you know, an attacker is not going to be able to tamper with that particular traffic.
0: Well, thank you, Dan, uh, for filling us in on this. Dan Gooden, security editor at Ars Technica. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the latest gravitational wave discovery. It's exciting. We'll talk about why scientists are so excited. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. About 130 million years ago, two neutron stars collided. And that collision created a universe-shaking explosion. So big, astronomers are calling it a kilonova. That rippled space-time and splattered the cosmos with a cocktail of heavy metals, including lots of gold, about 200 times the mass of Earth in gold. This week, astronomers announced that they had spotted the signals from that collision, both in gravitational waves, waves like the ones LIGO detected from merging black holes, and in signals across the range of the electromagnetic spectrum from optical light to gamma waves. It sounded like this. <laughs> oh, that little chirp right there at the end. I hope you could hear that because uh, it was kind of faint. And joining me now to talk about what makes that observation so important and what it means for our understanding of the universe are my guests. Vicki Calogera is a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. She's also a member of the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. Welcome.
3: Uh, hi, happy to be w- with you.
0: Nice to have you. Daniel Holtz is a, an associate professor at the University of Chicago and the Kavli Institute for Cosmological Physics and a member of the LIGO Scientific Collaboration as well. Welcome, Daniel. And thank you. It's so great to be here. Be, uh, Dr. Callagher, tell me exactly, what exactly did astronomers see? What was the what was the signal or all the signals?
3: Well, what's amazing with this discovery is that uh, we didn't just see, but we actually also heard. So uh, uh, first, uh, on August 17th, early on, we heard more than 100 seconds of gravitational waves coming from the in-spiral, the death spiral, of a pair of neutron stars. They were going one around the other until they came so close that they actually collided. So the gravitational waves came first, and we heard them with the LIGO detectors, uh, laser interferometers in the US. And then two seconds later, a cascade of waves across the whole electromagnetic spectrum started. It started with gamma rays, the most ele- uh, the most energetic light we have, and continued with optical light. Uh, also later, X rays and eventually um, uh, radio waves that continued over hours, days, mm. and weeks. This combination of gravitational waves and electromagnetic waves coming from one cosmic source has never been observed before. So wow. this was one amazing. First,
0: mm-hmm. uh, and Dr. Holtz, why is this such a big deal? What do we learn from neutrons colliding that we would not know from black holes colliding?
2: Oh, there's an incredible range of new science here, and it's really hard to pick out what's most exciting. I mean, there's we learn about the speed of gravitational waves. We've now learned that the speed of gravity is uh, the same as the speed of light. We've learned where the gold and the platinum in the universe is made, or at least a good fraction of it. Um, we've also been able to measure the scale of the universe in a whole new way. I mean, these are all completely new developments, all from this one discovery.
0: Hmm. Our number, 844 724 if you'd like to talk about it. You can also tweet us uh, at SciFry. Uh, um, uh, Dr. callagher explain for us what a neutron star is, how big it is, how it's different than a black hole.
3: So a neutron star is actually the most compact star that uh, nature can form, and it is still not as compact as a black hole, but it's still a star in the sense that it is still made of matter, uh, regular particles, primarily neutrons, and that's why we call it a neutron star. Now, it comes from the demise of uh, very massive stars, about 10 or 20 times the mass of the Sun. When those stars run out of nuclear fuel, they cannot support themselves against their own gravity. So the inner parts of those stars collapse under their own gravity, but eventually they don't become black holes. Mm. Not they don't become points. But instead, they manage to support themselves because of um, uh, nuclear uh, pressure, and they manage to become neutron stars. Now, these are very small; they're as big as. Since I, I am both Daniel and I are in the Chicago area, they are about the size of the city of Chicago, but they have a mass which is one and a half times the mass of the sun. One teaspoonful of that neutron star matter is as heavy as the whole mountain uh, of Everest. Wow! Um, So this is extremely dense matter, uh, which has very peculiar properties. We don't have these kinds of properties on our planet, so the only way to study this kind of material is really by studying uh, cosmic sources that, like this collision. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and how do you know from looking at the data that last year's observations were black holes merging mm-hmm. and this event is neutron stars? How do, you, how do you know that?
3: So this we know in two different ways. Uh, first, the gravitational wave signals are very different. So they both have this characteristic sound that you played in the beginning of the segment, which was this chirp-like sound, whoop, except when it is neutron stars, the signal in gravitational waves is much longer. So we heard it play much longer. Uh, In this case, it was more than 100 seconds. Uh, So long signals imply small masses And that tells us that we are dealing with neutron stars, given what else we know in astronomy and astrophysics. Uh But there is now one might ask, you know, why couldn't it be small black holes? You know, about one and a half times the mass of the sun, but black holes. Yeah, I'll ask it. And there, there we need the electromagnetic waves. The fact that we saw light right after the collision means we had at least one neutron star.
0: That's really interesting. And, and you know, Dr. Holtz, there's been a lot of, a lot have been made in, uh, about how much gold came out of this collision. What, what, what is the connection between this event and the heavy metals like gold in there? Why, why so much?
2: Well, one, one of the interesting things about the way the elements are made, so we have a very nice picture of how this is all made um, from the very Big Bang, where the Big Bang makes some lighter elements like hydrogen and helium. and then uh, those elements form stars, and the stars burn and produce heavier elements. And that story works all the way to iron, and it works very well, and it kind of accounts for everything we've seen, um, but not past iron. So heavier elements like gold and platinum, we've had trouble explaining how there's as much gold and platinum as there is, uh, for example, in our galaxy when we make observations. And this now helps address that question. What we've seen through measuring the light through measuring um, everything with our optical telescopes and these other telescopes, um, what we've now measured are signatures that that indicate all these heavier elements are being made and, and they're being spewed out uh, into into the galaxy where this thing resides. And so we're actually watching the movie of the formation of that gold and platinum, and a lot of it. As you said, it's many, many times the mass of the Earth in, in gold and in platinum. There's also uranium. There are a bunch of other things being being produced and then being spewed out, and so now we can say this is where it all yeah. comes from. Do
0: do we know? Do we think that these these uh, collisions are common, producing gravitational waves between uh, either black holes or gravitational waves from neutron stars? Pretty common. Well, so
3: it,
2: it, it, oh, you can go, Vicky.
3: It's okay, Daniel. We both know the answer. Um, so <laughs> I would say so I would say um, so we have had suspicions of how uh, common these collisions are, but with this one observation, we've actually gotten a much better picture. Uh, it's It turns out that uh, they are very rare as we expected, but not as rare as they could have been. So in terms of numbers, in a galaxy like our own, these collisions maybe happen a dozen times, maybe a few dozen times, uh, per millions of years.
0: Well, that's, uh, so well, that, that, that's rare. That's, that's rare, but they could be coming in from other parts. My question is, if, we, if these are coming from different places, different neutron stars, let's say, or different black holes, and they're actually warping the space around them and sending a wave, of gra- a gravitational wave, what happens if two of them meet, two gravitational waves, one from two different collisions, meet in space? What happens at the juncture, like a ripples in the pond, of two ripples, when they meet? What happens to the, to the gravitational waves?
2: So, so what's interesting about that is the very first paper I ever wrote, the very first project when I was an undergraduate, was on that specific question. And I showed that if you had really strong gravitational waves crashing into each other, you could make black holes. But for what we're talking about here with our detectors on Earth, we had to build a state-of-the-art detector. We, we pushed the technology to the very edge, and we barely, barely detected anything. And so even if we had multiple sources of gravitational waves all coming at the same time, it would still barely register. It's uh, Unfortunately, it's very difficult to make extremely strong waves all colliding in the same place.
1: Mm.
0: So it's, it's, it's not like, you know, I'm thinking waves in the pond, you see how they build up and waves in the ocean, but you're saying these are so weak, wouldn't get any build up. That's exactly right. Yeah, also well, thinking of standing waves, things like that. Or... That's if, right. If the waves... I mean, it would
2: be great if we could do stuff with these waves, but we, we haven't come up with a way to do that.
0: Well yet. I'm thinking, you know, if the waves come together and they crest really high, so you if you're warping space time like that, could you tunnel through it and then get, you know, to the other side. Shorter
2: amount of well, time. Yeah, that's di- to, to be honest, part of the inspiration for that first paper was this analog of these rogue waves in the ocean where every now and then you get this massive wave because everything comes in phase. And it's exactly as you said. If you have, in principle, really strong gravitational waves, they could generate this huge curvature of space-time and just collapse to a black hole. But um, we don't think that happens. Hmm.
0: Let me see if I can get a uh, phone call in. Uh, let's go to uh, Wayne in Warner Robbins Georgia. Hi, Wayne. Hello. Uh, Thank you for letting me on the show, uh, the radio. My question uh, to your panel is that, is the gold that we have here on Earth made here on Earth, or did it come from outer space from uh, this uh, neutron uh, planet's uh, implosion or uh, explosion coming together? Good question. So the gold we have here on Earth is from some collision of neutron stars?
2: So, so my money would be on that it's coming from something what we call a kilonova, exactly these sorts of things. That, you know, sometime in the past, probably many millions of years ago, there was a collision like this in our Milky Way galaxy. And it spewed a bunch of gold out. And, and eventually, actually, this would be probably much, much longer. Now that I'm thinking about it, probably be billions of years ago. And when the Earth formed, some of that gold was part of its formation. You just blew my yep. mind on this thing.
3: Indeed. Uh, and, and that, that, gold, that's, 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 go on, that gold exists uh, in the gas that uh, surrounds the sun. It becomes planets. It goes into our mount, ma- mountains, and we get it in the mines uh, and we make our jewelry and our watches, but it's not made in the earth. It pre exists.
0: I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Talking with Daniel Holtz and Vicki Caligara, who just, as I say, blew my mind about this. This gold is much more valuable than
2: it's <laughs> when you think of where it came from, how much more well, valuable it must be. Well, and you can see part of the reason we're so excited now, I mean to have have figured this out. It, it, it's pretty good. What's up <laughs> uh,
0: And so this is part is this part of the excitement you know of of the neutron star collision discovery? I mean, what other things are blowing your mind about this this discovery? Are you measuring the universe more accurately, or are we measuring constants more accurately?
2: So something I'm particularly excited about is, is this ability to measure the expansion of the universe much much more accurately, or at least in a completely different way. And so by, by using this event, by the fact that we've detected it both in gravitational waves and in light, we can do an absolutely unique sort of measurement that we've talked about and we've wanted to do for a long time, but we've never been able to do before. And now we've done it, and we can measure this expansion how quickly the universe is expanding around us right now and by doing that we get an overall sense of the scale of the universe and the age of the universe and it's it's just it's beautiful we've done the measurement and, and, and have we have and we had to
0: change our idea about that yet
2: do we know what know it is? what no, we, we know what it is. Um, there are still some errors. It's the very first time we've done it, um, but it's consistent with what we've known before, and the whole picture just kind of fits together. Hmm. And that's remarkable because we've never been able to do this before, and yet it all kind of works. But what do you, you you just, go ahead, uh, doctor.
3: There is one other first with this discovery. I mean, it's amazing, as Daniel said earlier, there's so many scientific uh, new conclusions we're drawing in one event that we're all uh, excited. The other first is that um, we've had for 50 years. Explosions in gamma rays that we've been observing. They started, uh, our observations uh, in the community started in the late 60s. And over the 50 years, we have suspected uh, theories developed that maybe they are coming from collisions of two neutron stars. But we never had proof. Uh, for the first time with this discovery and the addition of the observations of gravitational waves, now we know we're dealing with a collision of two neutron stars from the gravitational waves. And two seconds later, we see the gamma ray emission arriving. And we finally have a proof that collisions of neutron stars are producing these short bursts of gamma rays. That's another first that came within the first few minutes. Uh, and the understanding uh, came within the first few hours of the community analyzing the data.
0: So, Because gamma rays, gamma rays have always been mysterious. Yes. <laughs> and now we know they come from the collision of neutron stars.
3: We have an actual proof.
0: So we've settled on gold and gamma rays, all at the same
3: time. <laughs> and the expansion of the universe. And the expansion right. of
0: the universe. What else?
3: And, I, and the speed of gravity.
0: Oh, that's been verified.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So this was the first yes. time we could measure that gravitational waves go at the speed of light. Now, the theory says that it, it has to, and this is what everyone expected. But now we've measured it. We showed. I mean, the gamma rays and the gravitational waves uh, arrived at Earth after traveling for over 100 million years. They arrived at Earth within two seconds of each other. So their, their speeds are, at, you know, to 15 decimal places are the same.
0: We now have something to really be happy about for this, this weekend. Wow. Hold it,
3: hold
0: it. No wonder. <laughs> and for much longer.
3: This is only the beginning. <laughs> yeah, the,
0: that's that's the truth. Well, we'll hoist a beer to all you guys and gals uh, for, for the work you've done. Thank you very much, Vicki Caligara and uh, Daniel Holtz, uh, both members of the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Very, very informative. Thanks again.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you for
0: having us. You're welcome. After the break, Walter Isaacson joins us to talk about the art and science of Leonardo da Vinci and uh, how he made the smile and all other kinds of stuff on the, on the Mona Lisa. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. If you've seen the Mona Lisa, you know it holds your attention longer than most portraits. The slight smile and the sideways glance is subtly captivating and, according to my next guest, gives a glimpse into her thoughts. He says it's no accident Leonardo da Vinci engineered it that way. He carefully studied how the muscles of the face work to be able to translate emotions into paint. Da Vinci also studied engineering and anatomy to unite art and science. He created stage sets, anatomical drawings. Nothing escaped his eye. My next guest has profiled innovators like Steve Jobs and Albert Einstein. His latest book examines the life of Leonardo da Vinci. Walter Isaacson is the author of Leonardo da Vinci. He's university professor of history at Tulane and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Walter, always happy to have you back on Science Friday.
5: I love your show, Ira. That was a great segment on LIGO, and it's always a pleasure to be back. Thanks. Well,
0: well thank you, Walter. Uh, uh, we have uh, an excerpt of your book on our website, along with all the images we're going to talk about. So if you want to see what we're talking about during our conversation, go to sciencefriday.com slash Leonardo. Uh, it appears, I mean, this book, I don't know where to begin. There's so much packed into this book. Uh, it's it's like a course in art and science and engineering all at once, but it's it's a page-turner at the same time. So I'm just going to start. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm, I'm, uh, nothing escaped da Vinci's eyes, it seems, but there, there have been keen observers through history. Charles Darwin, Einstein, you've written a, a lot about such people. But what makes special uh, da Vinci's skills of observation? What sets da Vinci apart from all of these others?
5: Well, first of all, it's what you said, which is that he connects all of the disciplines. You know, we sometimes get ourselves a bit siloed, but Leonardo was curious to know everything there was to know about everything you could know about creation, including how we fit into it. And he made lists of questions every week from why is the sky blue to ask a friend of his about how to do a measurement of the sun to things like uh, describe the tongue of a woodpecker, something he'd want to know only out of pure curiosity. So a wide-ranging curiosity and an ability to connect the beauties of art and music to the beauties of nature, just like Einstein. You were just talking about him. When he was having trouble with those uh, field equations for general relativity, he'd pull out his violin and play Mozart to connect him to the harmonies of the spheres, And Leonardo da Vinci, to me, is the ultimate example of somebody who sees beauty across both art and engineering.
0: Now, it's interesting uh, that you say that uh, because uh, Mario Livio, physicist, wrote a book called Why? What Makes Us Curious? And he talks about da Vinci and his curiosity and compares him to Richard Feynman, who was also famous Mm -hmm. for wanting to know how everything works.
5: Well the thing about Leonardo is that he was lucky to be born out of wedlock because had he been a legitimate first son he would have had to been a notary like his father and grandfather and great grandfather mm. and he would have been a horrible notary cuz he was always getting distracted and being curious about new things and he also had to be self-taught he couldn't go to one of the you know classical schools filling up the renaissance kids with scholastic medieval wisdom And he became a disciple of experience, he kept calling himself. And that meant he was curious. He was always poking and prodding at things. And we can kind of learn from that. We'll never quite be like Einstein in understanding the curvature of space-time, but we can be like Leonardo and understand the curving of a leaf and why the sun sparkles on it and how it casts a shadow off of a curved object.
0: Yeah. Uh, If you were to ask him, is he... Are you a scientist? Are you an artist? He would see no difference between the two.
5: That's the exact right answer. Uh, You know, he did not make a huge distinction. Uh, When he reached that unnerving milestone of turning 30, he writes a job application to the Duke of Milan, and he lists all the things he can do in 11 paragraphs. And the first 10 paragraphs is sort of engineering and design, like I can design public buildings, I can divert the course of waters, I can make weapons of war. It's only in the, uh, 10th par- uh, the 11th paragraph where he says, I can also paint. But if you look at, say, Vitruvian Man, the guy spread eagle in the circle in the square, which is a self-portrait of Leonardo figuring out how do I fit in, how do I match the proportions of a church and of the universe, you can see that as an icon both of the connect- of science and of art, and as you say, the fact that there isn't much of a distinction between the two.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell us a, a bit about the backstory on this image. What was he trying to depict there?
5: Well, he was doing many things. First of all, his whole life he wrestles with that wonderful mathematical puzzle of squaring the circle. How do you make a square? The exact same area as a circle using only a ruler and a protractor. There may be 500 drawings in his notebooks on that sort of thing. Secondly, he was working on church designs, and Vitruvius, the ancient uh, uh, architectural writer, says a church should be designed like the proportions of a human. Now, we think of Leonardo as some loner going into a garret, but actually he went with friends to Pavia. They looked at the church there, and two or three of his friends all did drawings trying to show the proportions of a human, proportions of a church. Leonardo is the one who makes maybe 300 or so measurements of humans, his students. He measures every part of their anatomy, both standing and moving, and it's exactly scientifically correct. But even more uh, thrilling is that when he does it, it's also a work of unnecessary beauty, perfect shading, him standing there, Naked, feeling naked against the universe and the cosmos. And it's very spiritual because it is the circle and the square mm. and how that represents the earth, the cosmos, and the proportions of a church. It was just a wonderful few weeks where he and his friends are doing that study. And out of that collaboration comes this amazing burst of creativity that we all wear on our t shirts or on our coffee mugs. Mm. To sort of represent the confluence of science and art,
0: uh, you you were actually able to see the original, the Man in person. Well, what was that oh boy, like? What, a what was what was yeah? What was it like? You know, across? it's
5: on the fourth floor of the Academy uh, in Venice, and they keep it in a closet because it's not supposed to be exposed to light. But you know, with a lot of phone calls and whatever, I was said you know, can you show it to me? And you climb up the four flights of stairs and they just open a closet, and they bring it out in a gray folder. And suddenly there's a thrill, because I've been studying how he does the circle and the square, but you see the precision of those sharp lines. He knows to make the square a little bit lower on top than the circle, and it's not like he's sketching this. This is a sharply incised line, and then the point of his protractor right in the middle so that the navel is in the middle of the circle and the genitals, the center of the square. And you just see that this wasn't some off-the-cuff sketch, but something where we feel the hand of the master touching the paper and making those lines.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit, bit, uh, because we have to, it's there, the Mona Lisa, his most Mm. famous work and, of course, known for that smile and a glance. And Tell us a bit about how he engineered that look to convey a certain internal you know, psychology. Uh, well,
5: when I was doing this book, instead of just basing it on his art masterpieces, I wanted to base it on the page after page, 7,000 or more p- notebook pages he did. And so I go through them, and on a bunch of them, about 12 of his anatomy things, he's dissecting a human face, taking the, peeling the flesh off of a cadaver, doing every muscle and nerve that touches the lips. He discovers many things, including things you and I could discover, like the bottom of the lip is a muscle, but the top lip isn't, so you can push out your lower lip but not push out your... You know, things like that that he's just so observant, he discovers. But on the 12th page of these drawings, at the very top I'll look, and there's a faint sketch and just a sketch of a smile. And you see how his studies of anatomy, he's starting now to sketch in light chalk the Mona Lisa's smile. He also dissected the human eye and found that the light that hits the center of the retina sees detail. The cones there see details, whereas on the edges of the retina, the cones are better at seeing shadows. So at the very edge of the lips, after 14 years he's still painting that smile on the Mona Lisa, he makes the details turn downward a tiny bit, but the shadows turn upward. So it's an elusive smile. If you look directly at the corner of her lips, you see the detail, and she doesn't look like she's smiling. But your eye wanders to her chin or her cheekbone, and suddenly the smile pops on. So it's an augmented reality. It's interactive, and your own reactions seem to be affecting her reactions. So it, her reactions change as you look at her. You know, is she happy? Well look again. What's the mystery behind those eyes? What is she thinking? Look again. It will look different. And so that's why the Mona Lisa is not just the most famous painting in the world. It deserves to be the most famous painting and the most beautiful painting in the
0: world. And he just didn't sit down one day, as you say, and paint it. It took many, many years. No, it was a
5: cloth merchant's wife, you know, in 1503 gets asked to do it, he doesn't dance to the money of his patrons. In fact, he had deflected the richest woman in Italy, wanted him to paint something, and he didn't. But he never delivers it to the cloth merchant. You know, he starts in 1503. Then he brings it to four different cities as he's going around Italy. Finally, he moves to France to be the under the patronage of Francis I and carries the painting with him. It's there by his deathbed, and he's still, after 14 years, putting the tiniest, tiniest layer of glaze, you know, uh, light paint brush strokes, uh, because he knew he could always perfect it. And for him, it was a great universal yeah. painting.
0: Well, you, you point out in your book how many things he started but never finished. Boy, I, I, did, yeah. did he just lose interest in the bit of a, a lapse yeah did he just lose interest <laughs> well, in them or do you get distracted but, oh you know cuz he's curious about something oh i see something new let me let me work on that thing
5: well first of all yes he got distracted secondly he let the perfect be the enemy of the good as a young painter in florence he's doing adoration of the magi it's a swirling collection of you know kings presenting gifts and people slapping their forehead And Leonardo has just learned how not only to make, how shadows can be perfected, but how light bouncing off of an object will change the texture of shadows. So it gets very complicated as he does it, and he puts it aside. He can't make it perfect. Likewise, he puts aside St. Jerome in the wilderness. But what happens, he goes back to St. Jerome 20 years later after dissecting a human neck, and he redoes the neck muscles of St. Jerome. So I think partly he gets distracted, partly he wants to be such a perfectionist he won't just deliver a painting when it gets good enough. And thirdly, as with the Mona Lisa, he thought, let me just keep it, I'll always be able to improve it, as he did with the Saint Jerome.
0: Where did he get his energy from? Working on so many things.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it came from curiosity. He was a guy totally driven by curiosity. And the delight is we have all these notebook pages. So he'll make a list of things he's curious about. And it's as if he's driven. Uh, The Gutenberg had just come up with the printing press. So he's always writing, go find uh, the translation of Euclid that's at the stationers by the bridge. These type of things. And, you know, my favorite, as I mentioned earlier, was Describe the tongue of the woodpecker. That's Hmm. like number 16 on one to-do list. (laughs) Now, who wakes up one morning and says, uh, I want to know what the tongue of a woodpecker looks like? I mean, how would you even find, you know, would you open the mouth of a woodpecker? (laughs) But Leonardo wanted to know not because it would help him paint a painting or build a flying machine like he was building. He wanted to know because he was Leonardo, and he believed in curiosity for its own sake, which showed him the patterns of nature.
0: I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International, talking with Walter Isaacson, author of uh, his new book, Leonardo uh, da Vinci. Um, how would you rank him with all the other scientists that you've written about?
5: Let's take Einstein, who you were talking about earlier in the show. Einstein was almost touched by lightning, as you would say, meaning... He had a processing power that involved the ability to use equations to describe the curvature of space and time in ways that an ordinary mortal cannot really aspire to. Leonardo, if you go through his notebook, made arithmetic mistakes. He left things unfinished. He wasn't particularly great at making theoretical concepts. He was just very good at experiment and sort of understanding nature by seeing patterns across things like swirling water and the pumping of the heart valve and the River Jordan going by the ankles of Jesus, all these things that sort of form a certain swirling patterns for him. He could do that. So his genius was a little bit more self-made It came from pushing himself to be very observant. He'd write in his notebook, go down to the moat by the castle and look at four-winged dragonflies to see if their wings flap in unison or move alternately. These are things we could all do if we would pause a few times a day, maybe even a few times an hour, and say, let me look a little bit more closely at that. And by doing so we would see how things cross different disciplines in nature and form certain beautiful patterns. And we don't have to aspire to be Einstein, but we can all aspire to be more like Leonardo.
0: Yeah, and he did was not boxed in by what people wanted him to do, and he... Combine the beauty of uh, of art and science. Walter Isaacson's latest book is Leonardo da Vinci. He's also CEO of the Aspen Institute in Washington. You can read an excerpt at our website at sciencefriday slash Leonardo. I've read all of Walter's books, and I this one is a masterpiece and a lesson. And I you must have taught yourself art just <laughs> writing this book, Walter. Thank you very much for taking time to thank be with you, us today. Thank you. Charles Berkowitz is our director, senior producer, Christopher Intagliata. Our producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, and Katie Heiler. Our radio intern is Sir Paddock. And we had uh, technical and engineering help today from Rich Kim, Sarah Fishman, and Jack Horowitz. And you can now listen to us on Alexa. Alexa, play Science Friday, and she will. And also on Google Home. Two different ways to uh, know that Science Friday is on all week long. Not just on Fridays every anymore. I'm Ira Flato in New York.